Achille Mbembe. Now, he's described in a multitude of ways, historians, social and political theorists, a post-colonialist, a philosopher. So I'm not really sure which description fits best, which is most appropriate. What I am certain of is that he's produced a prodigious amount of work about the nature of African societies, their relationship with the rest of the world, and indeed with themselves. His deconstruction of modernity and the nature of race and racism have influenced the generation and helped shape today's discourse. Professor Mbembe was born in what is now Cameroon. He studied in France, he studied and taught extensively in the United States, and he's led research into social sciences in Senegal, and his current post is at Johannesburg Witwatersrand University at the Institute for Social and Economic Research. So it is my pleasure to invite Achille Mbembe to the podium. Thank you very much, uh, Martin. Uh, first of all, I would like to uh, genuinely thank Sigmund uh, Ulle Solveig, uh, Ellen and the Holzberg uh, team, uh, not only for inviting me here, uh, but also uh, for, for making me feel welcome. I was at the center of a rather unfortunate uh, incident uh, at the airport in, in Bergen uh, when I landed here uh, the day before yesterday, the details of which uh, I will spare you from. Uh, suffice it to mention that uh, in spite of the uh, perfectly legal nature of my brief presence in your country, um, I was subjected to a thorough racial profiling by three police officers. I mentioned this incident, and please don't take it personally. <laughs> I mention it uh, not only because you have the right uh, to know how certain classes of, of people are daily treated uh, at the borders of your country. Uh, I mention it uh, not only because uh, you have to know, therefore, uh, the price they may be requested to pay uh, for your kind hospitality, uh, but also because this incident is uh, significant of the general temperament of our times, uh, of which uh, Ellen said a few words in her introduction. As such, I judge it to be highly relevant to the kind of issues we are called upon to reflect upon uh, here this afternoon. Indeed, as Ellen intimated, there are different conceptualizations of affect. But there is a particular kind of affect I would like to, to call racist affect, which is uh, definitely uh, a key component of the current world climate, or if you want, world atmosphere, and I use these two terms, climate and atmosphere, uh, purposefully. What is racist affect? Racist affect is partly about how negative and dark emotions circulate between bodies bodies which are taken as signs of strangeness. The work racist affect does is to single out 
bodies. To separate, isolate such bodies, to tear them apart from other bodies until a point when and this tearing apart reaches a moment of maximal intensity. And in the current climate and atmosphere, we can witness such moments of maximal intensity at various borders of the world. A racist effect is about the disrupting encounter with a body that is not mine, a face that is not mine, a body and a face whose difference or alterity vividly interpolates me, a body and a face I refuse to recognize as made in the image of my own body and of my own face. Uh, a face and a body which profoundly disturbs me, even shocks me, to the point where, in relation to it, I am likely to always act irrationally. I am likely to always act compulsively and in a destructive manner. So this compulsion to act in a destructive manner, this willful misrecognition of the other's face, this uh, urge to mistreat the other's body, to inflict injury to the self of the other, this is the kind of job our three policemen were performing at the border, or to put it precisely, this is the job they are expected to perform at most of the borders of Europe today, tracking and racially profiling the stranger. Two days ago, it happened, uh, happened to be their target, but of course, it could have happened to any other person with a skin like mine. I mention all of this because not to make you feel guilty or not to make you feel uncomfortable. I mention all of this, and this is the second kind of effect typical of the current world climate and atmosphere. I mention all of this because one of the major contradictions of liberal democratic order has always been the tension between freedom and security. Today, this question seems to have been resolved. Security nowadays uh, trumps freedom. It matters, apparently, more than freedom. Now, the fact is that society of security is not necessarily a society of freedom. A society of security is a society dominated by the irrepressible need for adherence to a collection of myths taken for certainties. It is a society that is fundamentally fearful of the truth, fearful of the unknown, and ultimately fearful of itself. It is this deep-seated fear of itself that is then projected outside to whoever stands as a stranger or as a foreigner. This is why in a society of security, the priority is at all cost to identify what lurks behind each new arrival 
Who is who? Who lives where? With whom? And since when? Who does what? Who comes from where? Who is going where? When? How? Why? And so on and so forth. Generalized suspicion and lack of trust. And it seems to me that this generalization of suspicion and this lack of trust are typical of the affective nature of uh, our times. The aim of a society of security is not to affirm freedom, but to control and govern the modes of arrival, the modes of public appearance. And the current myth claims that uh, technology constitutes the best tool for governing these arrivals or these modes of uh, public appearance. And for the time being, uh, strangers, migrants, and refugees are bearing the brunt of it. Um, in London, it is by no means certain that they will be the only ones. Now, that's the first set of comments I wanted to put on the table as we engage in this very important uh, discussion. Let me now move to a second set of remarks. And uh, they also have to do with uh, some of the constituent features of these times of ours. Because ultimately, that is what we are asked to comment upon. The constituent features of this peculiar moment our world is going through, a moment for which there doesn't yet seem to be what I would call a proper name. Many names, of course, have been bandied around. For some, we are back to the European 1930s. For others, we are witnessing the return of fascism. Still, for others, we are entering uh, the age of dark enlightenment or illiberal or authoritarian democracies. For others, we are dealing with populism. Now, since naming our time is part of what is at stake, as we can clearly see, I suggest that in the midst of uh, the current confusion, one thing at least is clear. Ours is a time of planetary entanglement. We are more than ever before and at any other time in human history exposed to each other. And there is no going back to that being exposed to each other. Worldwide, the combination of fast capitalism, uh, soft power warfare, and the saturation of the everyday by digital and computational technologies, these factors have led to the acceleration of speed and the intensification of connections. And once again, there is no going back as far as these processes are concerned. But entanglement is not all that characterizes the now. Indeed, wherever we look, in Europe, in America, Latin America, Asia or Africa, wherever we look, the drive is simultaneously and I would say decisively towards contraction, 
towards containment and towards inclusion. Typical of this triple logic of contraction, containment, and enclosure is, uh, uh, has been and is the uh, erection worldwide of all kinds of walls and fortifications, all kinds of gates and enclaves. In other words, various practices of partitioning space, of offshoring and fencing of wealth, and levels of inequalities we see growing almost everywhere, of splintering uh, territories, of fragmenting spaces, saddling them with various kinds of borders so as to better control movement and speed, accelerating it here, uh, decelerating it there, and in the process, sorting out, recategorizing, reclassifying people uh, with the goal of better selecting anew who is whom, who should be where, and who shouldn't, all in the name of security. And for their full deployment, affects need infrastructures. The border is one such key infrastructure sustaining the proliferation of racist affect in our contemporary world. As a result, borders are increasingly the name we should use to describe the organized racial violence that underpins both contemporary capitalism and our world order uh, in general. Now, since I mentioned uh, borders, let me just add very quickly how it is that they are becoming more and more virtual. Uh, they are becoming more and more mobile, portable, omnipresent, a ubiquitous reality, uh, thanks precisely to uh, what I would call technological escalation. And I would therefore like to make some comments on this uh, idea of technological escalation, which is part indeed of uh, uh, the uh, constituent features of our times. So, first of all, as far as technological escalation is concerned and the kinds of subjects it produces and the kind of effect it generates, it is a fact that uh, unprecedented numbers of human beings are today embedded in increasingly complex technostructures uh, while significantly intervening in the dynamics of the Earth system on a planetary scale. And this has led to the transgression of planetary boundaries, such as those related to anthropogenic uh, climate change, uh, degenerative land use change, uh, accelerated biodiversity loss, uh, perturbation of the global biogeochemical cycles of nitrogen, uh, or for that matter, uh, phosphorus, and uh, the creation and release of novel entities such as uh, nanoparticles, genetically engineered organisms, 
and so forth and so on. Second, it is true that technologies are becoming more and more tied in complex networks of extraction and predation. Take, for instance, what is going on in the domain of genes and molecules. The uh, genetic codes of humans, of plants, of animals uh, has been cracked. Uh, this, in turn, has given way to uh, an exponential rise in biological patterns. And nearly, as you may know, 20% of the human genome is now privately owned. And life itself is increasingly seen as a commodity to be manipulated, to be replicated, while corporations are intervening directly in the natural cycles of life and ecosystems through uh, the, uh, uh, the widespread genetic modification of key elements, for instance, in the food chains. Why am I giving you all these examples? The point I want to make is that, in fact, to some extent, there is a shifting distribution of powers going on between the human and the technological, in the sense that technologies are moving towards general intelligence and self-replication. And in the process, the kind of subject, human subject, they are producing and the kind of effect they're generating is all but entirely different from the types of human subjects and effect we were used to, which was supposed to sustain the democratic project. That's the argument I'm trying to, to, to make. And then to all of this, we have to add what is going on in the field of knowledge, where uh, along with the predominance of statistical forms of reasoning, we have witnessed the development of algorithmic forms of intelligence, uh, which are growing in parallel with genetic research and often in alliance with it. And the integration of algorithms and big data analysis in the biological sphere brings with it, of course, a greater belief in techno-positivism and uh, in the idea that everything is computable, everything can be turned into a data or a code. And that is another aspect of the dominant effect of our times. So, a dominant effect of our times, let me repeat, is the belief that everything is potentially computable, calculable, and predictable. It is the belief that the fundamentals of truth can now be better expressed in the form of algorithmic thinking by machines of different kinds, machines which are capable of making decisions on our behalf. Of course, this new state of being has dramatic consequences on the future of knowledge and on the future of democracy itself. As far as knowledge is concerned, we have reached a point where 
Knowledge is increasingly defined as knowledge for the market. And since markets themselves are increasingly turning into algorithmic structures, the only useful knowledge today is supposed to be algorithmic. As a result of the conflation of knowledge, computation, and markets, contempt has been extended to anyone who has nothing to sell and nothing to buy, or to anything that cannot be bought. As a result, once again, the enlightenment notion of the rational subject capable of deliberation and choice is gradually replaced by the consciously deliberating and choosing consumer. Then we should factor in the quasi-hallucinatory power unleashed by contemporary computational technologies. These technologies have, maybe in spite of their original intention, become key devices in the dissemination of microfascism in the interstices of today's real. I could go on and on on this. Uh, let me leave it uh, uh, at that and try to sum up uh, the kinds of arguments I wanted to, to make. Sum it up in this way. Finance capitalism and technological escalation have left in their wake a multitude of destroyed subjects, many of whom are deeply convinced that their immediate future will be one of continuous exposure to violence and existential threat. They genuinely long for a return to some sense of certainty, some sense of the sacred, some sense of hierarchy, of religion and tradition. They believe that nations have become akin to swamps that need to be and the world as it is should be brought to the end. There's the apocalyptic uh, effect that saturates science fiction, certain musical forms, and so forth and so on. They believe that for this to happen, everything should be cleansed off. They are convinced that they can only be saved in a violent struggle to restore their masculinity and virility, the loss of which they unfortunately attribute to the weaker amongst them, the weak they do not want to become. In this context, the most successful political entrepreneurs are increasingly those who convincingly speak to the losers, to the destroyed men and women of globalization and to their ruined identities. And in the street fight politics has become, reason hardly matters any longer. Suspicion is and mistrust are what prevails. Facts don't prevail. Politics is therefore in danger of reverting into an endless game of suspicion and brutal survivalism in an ultra-competitive environment. Under such conditions, unfortunately, it is very difficult to see how affect as such can be mobilized for the benefit of a progressive 
and future-oriented mass politics of the left for those of us who uh, claim to be from the left. Let me conclude. Neoliberalism has created the conditions for renewed conversions and at times fusion between the living human being and the objects uh, which supplement or augment us. This event, which we can equate to a return to animism, is nevertheless not without danger for the idea of freedom, emancipation, and democracy. Democracy cannot survive in a fact-less world. Such a world is, by definition, hostile to the very idea of reason and of freedom. It is also hostile to democracy, understood not as ending at the borders of any national state, but as a kind of planetary and shared responsibility and agency in relation to the future of all inhabitants of the earth, humans and other than humans. Thank you very much.